0: This episode of Songwriter Stories is sponsored by Piano Wars. Piano Wars offers unique, high-energy entertainment featuring dueling pianos, sing-along, audience participation, and dance music. Find out more at PianoWars.com.
1: This is Amy Rigby, and you're listening to Songwriter Stories with Dave Caruso.
0: Amy Rigby weaves observational wit and interpersonal scenarios into songs that are perceptive, genuine, and easily relatable. Let's listen.
2: You say you'd like to kill the man who broke my heart You don't think he should be allowed to live You say you want to shoot the dude who screwed me up Me, I'm trying so hard to forget But here's his address, here's his picture Here's the make and model of his car He works until 4.30 Then he hangs out at the topless bar With a girl on each arm If he should come to harm Just keep it to yourself Stick the rhetoric with those slick politicians, we're magicians, we make reality disappear.
0: Amy Rigby, welcome to Songwriter Stories. Hi Dave. So, in 1996, you wrote and released your first solo album, Diary of a Mod Housewife.
1: Yeah. And
0: Elliot Easton produced and played on it. John Wesley Harding did some guest vocal work on it. And Spin Magazine votes you Songwriter of the Year. Uh-huh. So, it seems like you arrived on the scene fully formed, but you'd already been writing songs and recording them and performing with The Last Roundup and The Shams. Tell us how your first solo record evolved.
1: The Diary of a Mod Housewife, like I started recording it in 93 and produced by Gene Holder. Um, and then I ended up, um, you know, sending around this <laughs> cassette that I called Diary of a Mod Housewife for like two years, trying to find a record label who would put it out. And, you know, I got a good response, but nobody took, you know, no one took it on until, um, Nicholas Hill who um, was a WFMU DJ and who was involved in the singles only label. And um, yeah, just like a, just a music fan and guy about town in New York city um, who just very, you know, he, he, he was super supportive of a lot of Victoria Williams, Jeff Buckley. I mean, Nick, Nick was just sort of like a a guardian angel (laughs) for a lot of Mm -hmm. um, musicians, not in, um an artist not in a like professional capacity but just as a supporter he put up the money to help me record my initial um tape of <laughs> diary of a mod housewife and then eventually he got a job at Koch records and he was you know and that had always been our our kind of backup plan well if no one else will do it you know nick maybe you'll get a job at a record <laughs> label and then you know we can put it out that way and so when he did that, you know, a, a couple of years had gone by. I'd written some more songs, um, and so that then I went out to L.A. and and worked with Elliot Easton. He he produced the he's credited as the producer of the album because he kind of you know we brought it all together with new the new songs that I recorded out in L.A. and then put together a couple of the songs from the Gene Holder sessions and um and that's what came out as as the album so it kind of it, again it took it took a while <laughs> it took a couple sure. years from 93 to it came out in 96 so i think that as those three years went by it really did evolve as an album and and as a kind of like a vision that I was forming when I started it and called it Diary of a Mod Housewife, but by the time I'd finished the recordings and I sat down to like to write the liner notes that went in the package where I kind of said, This is about sanity and survival and um it kind of summed it all up. I wasn't really sure when I was doing it, what I was doing it for, but that kind of helped help define it.
0: Yeah, but I think a lot of artists, they'll put out their first album without really knowing who they are. Somebody else is telling them who they are. Like, this is the image we want for you, or this is the image we're going to sell you as because we think we can sell it. You-
1: I never had anybody like, well, nobody ever was interested in me
0: that way. All the way back to the shams, you're becoming this person who has a child and says, I'm going to start putting that part of myself into my writing. You were developing that early before your first album came out.
1: That's true. And I, yeah, like I never, I never had, you know, some music biz impresario saying like, you, you're going to be a star. Here's how we're going to do it. You know, like, so I guess I was lucky. I agree. <laughs> you know, I don't know. I don't know if I felt lucky. I felt like, Oh God, won't somebody like pluck me up out of, you know, this day job mm-hmm. and <laughs> tell me what to do, please. <laughs> so now I realize I was really the lucky one.
0: Yes. Because it's because of the freedom. Uh, you got to do what you wanted to.
1: Yeah, and, and also the time. Yeah. <laughs> All
0: right, so I'm going to skip around a little bit and talk about some of your songs, and i uh, love to hear your input about them. And you can talk about as detailed as you want about how they were written or how you write in general, your, your process. But anybody browsing your song catalog would notice that you care a lot about writing evocative song titles like Beer and Kisses, The Summer of My Wasted Youth, Men in Sandals and Dancing with Joy Ramone. What percentage of the time do you write your title first, as opposed to developing your theme first and then deriving the title after getting something down on the page?
1: That's an interesting question. I would say most of the time I arrive at the title as I'm writing the song. I love a great title, and I love, you know, that that phrase that just kind of like. Um, you know, sticks in your mind before, and it, and it probably existed before the song was ever written. And, um, and like I have some of those, like Beer and Kisses was one where my, um, my daughter was like six or so and, um, brought home these drawings of her dad and I from school and, um, and my, Mine was really, you know, like I looked Real sassy in a miniskirt And um, she called Mine kisses and she drew Her dad with like stubble And really rumpled looking And he was called beer
0: Oh, that's great Yeah,
1: I always thought I should I should have given her a co-writing credit On that song We met in the
2: Supermarket We loved like it was something new From day one we could not be parted You had me and honey I had you We got a little place between us Not much but we could call it home We lived on beer and kisses Kisses. all hopped up on love and Get home from work, turn on the lights, sit on the couch, spend the whole night there. Get home from work, turn on the lights, sit on the couch, spend the whole night there.
1: And somehow that just like worked its way into the song. I don't even know, like, when I started writing that song, if. I knew that that would be the title, but Mm -hmm. probably as I got to like, Oh, I need a chorus sort of chorus here, um, or refrain. And then I probably thought, Oh yeah. Like, and I remembered that, you know, I don't think I sat down to write beer and kisses, but I saved a lot of my notebooks from, from back then. So it's, (laughs) it is really fun to like, sometimes just like go through them and, and see, like I found, um, I think I might have even put it up on Instagram or something. I found the page that I wrote the lyrics for twenty questions in and I just and it's just like all pretty much exactly as the song turned out, except there's a there's a few lines that are you know that are scratched out and changed, but pretty much it's just like all tumbled out and I didn't start it to be twenty questions, but it just kind of turned into it as I was <laughs> as I was writing. So I I love that about songwriting, the discovery of the title.
2: questions for you I'm gonna ask you're gonna tell
0: for the uninitiated since you brought it up, twenty questions is not only a brilliant idea for a song um, but as the questions start getting asked uh, from the singer, the singer's asking questions of uh, the person that she's involved with, um, she eliminates the questions and then it becomes seventeen and six you know less less each time so if she asks a few more questions she lowers the number until the (laughs) end which is really really great
1: yeah definitely not by design it just kind of happened that way
0: (laughs) well in retrospect it was brilliant (laughs) (laughs) i was watching the video for tom petty karaoke which i think is a great video um you didn't have to spend a lot of money to make a video like that but it's really cute oh thank you
2: Nothing feels right Nothing feels right I'm going out on my own Can't stay home No, I can't stay home When I'm holding The microphone It's like I'm holding on To something that's gone When I say
0: Nice little homage, and uh, tell me on the date, was it released about a year after Tom's death?
1: Um, Yeah, I wanted it to come out on, I think it was October 7th, maybe it was the day he died, but I'm not, but I wanted it to come out that weekend, which was also right around his birthday.
0: He wrote about it um, that after another week of discord and divisiveness in the news, I saw a video of Jay Mascus, is it Mascus? Uh-huh. Singing "Tom Petty" in a karaoke bar, and I wrote this song. How long after he died did you write it? Was it really soon after?
1: No, it was. It was in July of um, okay. 2018, because I'd been to see Chuck Prophet um, in the Mission Express the night before. Um, my husband and I were there. They called us up on stage during the encore to sing on "American Girl," and. Um, and I you know, and Chuck did the first verse, and then he turned to us and was like, "Okay, second verse, and i uh, I just I felt almost like a karaoke singer, like I've never sung this song in public in my life, but I know the words like deep in my soul, um you know sure. well, it was kind of cold that night, she stood out on the balcony like <laughs> and I just like I was mm-hmm. singing, and I was like looking out into the audience, and I felt like Tom Petty like I just felt like this such this intense connection to him and then the next day I um, saw this video that Jay Maskus had posted he had a band called Dinosaur Junior he still does I mean I guess it's basically him oh yeah and um and it was it was him singing to, it was either don't do me like that or I won't back down I can't remember now And and it was just like this lonely karaoke bar it was almost like he was just singing for himself. And uh, and that just like really, you know, it all just like swirled together and turned into that song. We actually recorded the song like the next day. Um, and then it just took a little while to get the video together and to get it all mixed and mastered and all that.
0: The video is great. I like that you chose to be deadpan. Um, you're, you're wearing a, a wig, but you chose not to act um, like a person who normally does karaoke, has a lot of facial expression, and tries to act like a star.
1: If you look up <laughs> Jay Mascus Tom Petty karaoke, I was really just playing him.
0: Mm, gotcha. Yeah, you're doing the character.
1: And he was just standing so still. He wasn't being like a person at a karaoke bar, you know, trying to play to the crowd. He was just doing it for himself. And then, so that was the character I was
0: playing. And it switches to the live band when the when the musical break comes, and and then everybody's getting into it. And that's you know you and Reckless Eric, and who is the rest of your band?
1: It's interesting because you had Doug Weigel playing drums. He actually was um, my original Mod Housewife drummer back in in the nineties. He he um, was in a band called the Individuals, and and also the we- the Weigels. And, um, all, you know, and Janet Weigel was married to Gene Holder. Um, so yeah, it was all part of the, um, part of the family, but, um, then he, he actually lives up state, New York and has a record store in Kingston, New York. And, and yeah, so like I reconnected with him up here all these years later and play with him quite a lot. And then a friend of ours who, who lives in our town and is a great musician, Ross, uh, Goldstein, he played. He played the part of the of the bass player even though Eric played the bass on the recording.
0: That's nice. Dry wit and humor in songwriting can be a tricky thing, you know. Your wittiest material seems to be to me less about setup lines and punch lines and more about engaging storylines like in Tonight I'm going to give the drummer some. How conscious of that are you as you're writing? Do you think about that, like the fact of whether it's a funny, funny song or it's a story song? Because you seem very story-oriented to me.
1: It's a tough question because I, like, I love humor in songs.
0: But not like "bum not bum humor necessarily.
1: Yeah, because they can tend to be, if it's too sort of broad, it could be like called a novelty song.
0: Right. And disposable. You have to hear this whole song, even if you know what the title is, you have to hear the whole thing to get it.
1: Yeah. And you want to, and you want someone to be able to hear it again, even though they know what's coming. Mm -hmm. I don't know that I sit down, you know, to make a song funny, but just some situations, just like, it just naturally (laughs) goes that way. And like the the Give the Drummer song, like I just, I saw a guy walking towards me on 2nd Avenue wearing a Zildjian t-shirt and I was like, oh boy, here comes another drummer
0: those symbols,
1: <laughs> and that just turned into that song with all the knowledge that I have having been married to a drummer he's sad cause he's gotta
2: go work a day job till somebody calls, he's pissed cause the guy they chose has Cheerios instead of balls, he rocks when he puts the meters on and turns it up to ten he feels alone sometimes he knows he's not like other men cause he's got a drawer of siljan shirts and a bass drum in his living room he hits the snare so hard it hurts and it makes my heart go boom 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 so tonight i'm gonna give the drummer some tonight
1: i'm gonna give the Oh, and also, I guess I'm forgetting the most important part, which was that somebody had around that time sent me just like, and this was back when people would mail stuff to each other. We didn't even like email back then or have like Facebook or anything. But this friend in Philadelphia just sent me a drummer joke on a piece of paper. And it just said, what's the difference between a, a drummer and a U.S. savings bond? One will eventually mature and earn money. (laughs) <laughs> and, so, and that's the joke that I use in the song so that combined with seeing the drummer I think it did kind of just join together to become that song
0: it's awesome I like that it's a woman's story it, it, it can only be a woman's story she's in charge and it's the little mission of mercy <laughs> yeah that's
1: true that's a, good, that's a good way to look at it
0: this is going to be his Christmas day. For (laughs) Very cool. Now your writing tone sometimes has a sharp wit about it. That's successful because it's like, I'm kidding, but no, seriously. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, not sorry.
1: Yeah, no. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
0: And I think cynically yours kind of goes that way. You want to tell us a little bit about that song?
1: I was working in the legal department at CBS Mm -hmm. and um, one of my co-workers actually said, oh, I wish, you know, if I was going to get married again, I just wish there was a song that would be, you know, that would work and cover cover it in case things didn't work out. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, there we were sitting, typing up all this, like, legal stuff, so that, you know, I just, like, started writing
0: that song. Instead of I love you forever and and you're perfect, Cynically Yours is not that song at all, and it's great. The thought of
2: us together doesn't fill me with dread. I can picture being with you till one or both of us is dead. At the end of the day, I've got nothing good to say. But you don't suck, so I'm up. loving blank, take you, insert name here, because frankly, I'm just too tired to look around anymore. You drive reasonably well, have most of your own teeth, and not much of a prison record, so that's good. Plus, you claim to love my ass, and I have a tape to prove it, which makes me think this
1: thing really could work. (laughs) (laughs) I think I started it at CBS and then I ended up moving to Nashville and I hadn't written the like legal clause and I was just kind of killing time in this day job that I had at Vanderbilt University and I just like amused myself by writing that clause in the middle I realize sometimes now playing some of these songs like holy you know this song is like 20 years old Um, Mm -hmm. (laughs) and um, people haven't heard them before so i can get up in front of a crowd of people and they're all just like laughing and they're just loving it you know it's just hard to not want to play them <laughs> It just feels great to play songs that people can relate to and i'm sure <laughs> i'm sure i'll keep writing other ones too but i hate to like i hate to lose the old ones
0: right you, you have only so much time in a show
1: exactly and you have to kind of pick and choose and sometimes you know if you get a new one that you really really want to play you got to dump an old one
0: right some humorists use language and sexual content for shock value but when your protagonist asks her partner are we ever going to have sex again it's just a legitimate matter-of-fact question that millions of people have wondered about at some point in their relationships and it's seriously funny
1: now that song, um, I have to give credit to my co-writer Sherry Rich, who's uh, an Australian woman who was living in Nashville when I was living in Nashville at the time that we wrote that song. I was single, and she was married and with a you know much younger child. My daughter was a teenager by then, and so she had that idea: life's become a great big list of things to do and buy and fix. And then I said. And night we pass out before 10. And that, and, mm-hmm. but she already had she had the line, "Are we ever going to have sex again?" And she had uh-huh. the idea, and I just ran with it, even to the point where she said, "Do you think it's too depressing about the, you know, too much KFC and bud?" and you know, but anyway,
0: it's honest.:
2: Life's become a great big list. To do and buy and fix. At night we pass out before ten. Are we ever gonna have sex again?
1: It was an interesting co-writing experience because we kind of just we weren't in the same room. She, you know, she had started the song. And kind of was like, here, do, you know, can you do something with this? And then we, I think we finished it off with the little, um, the little, I don't know if you'd call them bridges or, um, Mm -hmm. you know, screw making love. It's way too ambitious. Let's get down on the rug after you finish the dishes. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But so yeah, great, you know, credit to Sherry for a great idea because, that is a song that people just die over and love and just like everybody in the room relates to it.
0: Yeah, well, she gave you the ball and you, and you did the nice layup and finished it up. So great job. <laughs> The places you've lived, New York City, Cleveland, Pittsburgh, and France, seem very different from one another. How are they different and similar as a songwriter, from a songwriter's perspective?
1: Well, one place you're missing in there is
0: Nashville. Oh, yes, please add that in.
1: You know, it all kind of peaked in a way with Nashville as far as, you know, I grew up in Pittsburgh, didn't play music there. You know, I learned to play piano, but I wasn't pursuing, you know, I wasn't thinking I was going to be a musician. New York made me as a musician, but I moved to Nashville to become, I guess, you know, I I said before I shied away from the word professional, but I wanted to make a living at mm-hmm. this thing that I felt like I was good at and that I wanted to do with my life and I felt like I couldn't do that in New York not for lack of trying but it just didn't seem possible and as a as a mom and stuff so I went to Nashville and it really I think when I went to Nashville when they would say oh you have to go in one door or the other or the artist door or the writer door and, um, I thought, well, you know, I, I could be a writer, you know, like I could, I could sit, you know, and I like co-writing and, and I, you know, I can crank out songs. I'll do, you know, I'll do that if that's what it takes. That's what I want to do. But I found when I got there that what I really was was an artist and it, it gave me a place to. It, it was a great place to tour out of. Cause like in New York, you, you've never had to tour. You could just play a different part of town every week. And you know, it's a whole different mm. um, audience, but in Nashville, well, as David Olney says, you know, when I need some time to myself, I book a gig in Nashville. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I don't know that that's so true anymore because the population has grown huge, compared to what it was in the, you know, late 90s, early 2000s. And it was just such an industry town. And it was was really hard to play gigs in Nashville for not many, you know, you'd play for, you you might play for David Olney or, you know, Peter Frampton was in the audience one time when I put, you know, like you would play for like just people, you know, um, people who were like at the peak of their craft, you know, and, and so that was very, it was very humbling and also very, um, stimulating, but, it, you know, but, but to really like make any money or, you know, to play for an audience, you had to leave town. And, and so I became more able and, you know, it, 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 it spurred me on to do that, to go out and, and start touring more. And, um, and I think it helped me focus more and define like what I did that wasn't what everybody else did. And, and so I feel, you know, I feel proud of the records that I made, you know, out of that time that I was in Nashville. And then Cleveland was just sort of a detour because of something <laughs> that kind of went wrong in my personal life. And, um, and also, you know, just cause I was, my daughter was finishing off high school and, her dad was living in Cleveland and it just was kind of not, it wasn't, it wasn't somewhere I sat down and said, Hmm, I think, you know, what would be a good place to move to Cleveland? It wasn't, it wasn't (laughs) anything like that. But, um, and then, and then France was just kind of, you know, a wacky romantic thing when reckless Eric and I got together and my daughter was off to college and, And we, Eric and I started a band together, just the two of us. And, and he said, do you want to move to France? And I was like, sure, (laughs) we could, you know, we can play music anywhere. And, um, and so that was just kind of what we, what we did. And it was quite, um, it was real like (laughs) woodshedding in France. And it was great because I never, I had never had like a, I mean, I don't know if I would call Eric my mentor, but I'd never had anybody like who, who'd who been like been through it and, you know, knew the ropes of like solo touring and recording, you know, like doing things on your own um, as much as he did, like decades of it. Tell me like, oh, you know, here's how you do that. And, you know, like. Look, get a decent pedal board, and put you know don't don't just like throw your pedals all over the stage. put them on a board, and you have to make sure your equipment works. Get your own microphone, you know, just like take care of your equipment, you know practice <laughs> all of that. It was like boot camp
0: <laughs> Good stuff would you say that any of those places that you lived ended up manifesting themselves in a song? Can you name a song that maybe has the city as a character in a song?
1: Yes, I, that's interesting because some, some songwriters you think, you know, like think of Lucinda Williams, like some, some of her songs are just so about place. I would say, you know, I've got Playing Pittsburgh off of my most recent album, but that one is very much about the experience of going back to the place you came from and even if you've been going for decades and feel like a success somewhere else going back and suddenly you know you're 13 again have acne and like (laughs) your hair's frizzing because um it's so humid and the pollution is so bad and that's kind of um that song feels very much about like pittsburgh men in sandals you know, I know that it's kind of a relatable, like across the board kind of thing, but it definitely was inspired by seeing a guy up on stage in Nashville, you know, playing amazing guitar, but just like wearing the like worst outfit possible <laughs> and just, you know, so I'll always like have a visual of a guy on stage at Douglas Corner in Nashville. Men in Sandals I think I'd rather- Summer of my wasted youth, very much, you know, New York City in the early 80s, but it's amazing how a song with very specific details, and, you know, this is why I love songs, like I love great fiction or memoir, like that's very specific details. Your details make other people see their details. If you pick the right thing, I've got my memories that I have, but if I pick just the right ones, they're just going to unleash something that lets somebody else see theirs. And so I love that about some of my wasted youth. It's really is like the East village in 1983, but I played it in Sweden last weekend for people, you know, in their forties, fifties, sixties. And, and they like, could feel their own memories of that time in their life.
2: Summertime in 83, the last time I took LSD, but listening to Patsy Cline and Skeeter Davis really blew my mind. Played the boombox in the courtyard. Never used a credit card still. Took a trip by Greyhound bus the summer. I believed in us. Pushed plaster cows down city streets. Wore thrift store skirts with little pleats. Smoke pot and
0: We've talked about the humorous side of your songs, but, um, like Roger Miller, uh, you have a lot of songs with a more serious side, and I think. From the audience's perspective, you're uniquely suited to write a song like Please Be Nice to Her. And what I mean by that is that we're much less likely to hear a song with that premise from a single guy, and that's really who the message is for. Um, You make a specific reference to kinky boots, which their fashion history informs the song. If you know what kinky boots are and, and where they came from, it actually informs the song Please Be Nice to Her. Want to talk about that song a little bit?
1: Um, yeah, it's interesting. I didn't maybe didn't specifically direct it towards um, guys or a guy, and was just thinking about like the world in general. It was like written at a time when my daughter was just you know off on her own in Chicago, and and Eric's daughter um, was going, who's also you know a young adult at the time, going through her own stuff. And, um, we were living in France at the time and we'd gone to Bordeaux and my daughter had bought these incredibly like gorgeous, sexy boots in a, in a vintage store. And, um, you know, and so I just, you know, I guess I kind of fixated on, on the boots, you know, just thinking like you'll have the look and the outfit, like, you know, yes everything you know but but knowing from my own years being like 18 walking around manhattan in four inch heels and a miniskirt you know just like i knew nothing you know and but there's certain words or phrases and songs when i sing them they just really get me every single time and that is definitely one of them
0: well um the idea that someone could wear something that look make them look more experienced than they really are And uh, it's going to attract a certain type of person, maybe. Yeah, you want those nice to her. That's beautiful, beautiful thought.
1: I was really glad when she, you know, maybe needed some money in Chicago, and she took a bunch of stuff to sell at another vintage store, and those boots were part of. (laughs) Those boots were in there. (laughs) Yeah.
0: You had an album in 2004 called Faulkner, Dylan, Hines, and Me.
2: Uh-huh. And
0: it was a collection of recordings, live recordings, between 1994 and 2003, according to what I've read. And it was available at concerts, and it was just something you, you know homebrewed and made it available to people. And you did a cover of They Don't Know by Kirstie McCall, and that's one of my favorite songs. Mm. I just wondered, um, I couldn't find it anywhere, like on YouTube or anything, and I'd like, just like to encourage you to post it someday and let people hear it.
1: Yeah, it's such a great I and a couple people I've like burned copies of it for people but I should actually mm-hmm. upload it and just make it available. Um I there's I think there's some great covers on there and mm-hmm. and then some songs that I just never released and um and it's yeah, it's a really it's I think it's a good collection that I just, you know, was kind of doing it just to sell it shows as a sort of a fan thing but nowadays it's just so (laughs) i mean back then it was like there was like a guy in nashville that could like duplicate cds and it was really it was kind of labor intensive to even do Mm -hmm. the most simple thing like that um but nowadays it's just like you know a few clicks and it could it could be it could be up there for people and i think that would be that's a great idea
2: Walked into the party looking just like he had in the past He came up to me and he didn't even have to ask I tried to say something, he said, girl, shut your mouth The are praying Papa was a rolling stone Last night I was dancing with Joey Ramone
0: You've got a book coming out in October, and I've, I've seen some posts on your blog about it. I, I've only uh-huh. recently gotten chance to read from your website. Um, but um, what's it going to be like? I, I did not see that. Is it a memoir? Is it? Uh, it's, a,
1: it's a memoir. It's called Girl to City. And it's about a girl from Pittsburgh who moved to New York City in the 70s to go to art school, discovers music at CBGB and eventually becomes a musician and a mom. I read a ton of memoirs and a ton of music biographies, autobiographies. Mm -hmm. Um, I hope it's written in a bit of a novelistic way. Like I I wanted it to be kind of like a, like a film and yeah, it just covers it. It ends when I, when I leave New York, because I, I want to write another part. I want to, I want to do like, you know, Nashville and I started writing this book like years ago because some agents had said you know like oh you, you know write me a proposal and you know like you should write a book and I I started and then I just was like oh my god you know like writing writing's really hard like compared to writing songs around then I moved to France and I started a I started writing a, a blog just kind of thinking. Um, you know, this will help like give me good practice for writing. And um, in that time in rural France, I started writing this book and it's just kind of taken, it's taken a long time.
0: Well, holding a song in your head is easy to do. Like you can read through it in a few minutes and say, this is where I left off. Here's what I need to do. But holding all the chapters in your head and saying, but did I leave anything out there? Do I need another um, uh, transition here? That's harder. I think
1: it's so hard. (laughs) And, um, it was a great experience for me. I hope, I hope it would be that for someone reading it, but it really helped me like make sense of a lot of, a lot of choices and things that, you know, that I did that seemed kind of random, but, um, but it all, you know, trying to kind of shape it into some sort of coherent narrative, um, like helped, I think it helped me make sense of it. So, um, so it's been it's been good, but it's been a big, it's been a big challenge. Today I was just thinking, like, I can live again once I, once I get this book out. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I don't know, and it's and I felt so I felt so free for a second. You know, I love making records and I love playing gigs and and writing songs and Playing these songs, but you know, to finish this really important task in my life, this project, it it has just kind of it's been huge. So it it feels like it'll just like free up a lot of creative energy that has gone into just this one thing for quite a while.
0: Well, we're looking forward to reading it, and um, I just want to thank you for taking your time to tell us your songwriting stories and uh, talk about your songs a little bit. Really had a good time today.
1: Oh, thanks, Dave. I really enjoyed talking to you. It was great.
0: You've been listening to Songwriter Stories, Episode 10 with Amy Rigby. There's more to this podcast than just the interview. For bonus content, visit songwriterstories.com and click on the Writer's Room link for this episode. If you like the podcast, consider giving us a review at Apple Podcasts. That's all for now. I'm Dave Caruso, and I'll see you next time.